0: Well, my, oh, my, uh, what a week it has been. It seems like it's been a long, long time since I've been with you all last Sunday. Uh, Last Sunday after uh, church, uh, we went straight from uh, church to Michigan to spend time uh, with my family. Uh, it's first time, uh, again, my grandparents got to meet Ayla, so that was uh, super cool. Uh, my uh, cousin uh, Morgan's boyfriend recently got a job uh, doing media work for MSU football. So while we were uh, up in Michigan, he gave us an in-depth uh, tour of their fields, their locker room, their practice uh, field, the whole shebang. That was uh awesome as well. Um, and so I had a great trip up in Michigan, uh, then home for a couple days. And then Thursday uh, through Saturday, uh, spent uh, all day at the uh, Thursday evening, and then all day Friday and Saturday uh, at the uh, Unitarian Christian Alliance Conference. And uh, man, that was an uplifting time for me. At uh, the conference, uh, we, are surrounded, we were surrounded by possibly uh, the best uh, theologians uh, in the world, at least in my eyes. These are the top theologians um, in the entire uh, world. They put a lot of uh, other theologians uh, to shame, uh, to be uh, quite honest. Um, and it was so great uh, to be uh, surrounded by a large group of people who have a serious thirst for God's word. And that thirst, that hunger, that passion for God's word, it is so, so contagious. You know, we spent a big chunk of our day in presentations and workshops and such, Um, And I can assure you, if I were sitting there uh, alone, you can view a lot of their teachings online. Um, And if I did that for uh, 12 hours straight, um, that that would have been uh, pretty draining uh, for me, spending 12 hours straight uh, digesting uh, this material. Uh, But it was so contagious, the passion was contagious, and and being a part of the community, a community of people who have an an intense Thirst for God's word um, and, and that passion as well, and, and we get that uh, on uh, we get a glimpse of that on a weekly basis as well here at church, and that's just such a wonderful, wonderful uh, blessing uh, that we all can partake in. Now, while I was at uh, the conference, uh, about uh, midway through, two thirds the way through uh, the conference, uh, I kind of made a, a stark uh, revelation there. Um, and this revelation uh, was that I was in the minority. I don't know uh, by how much, but, uh, due, uh, but based off of the conversations uh, that I've had and the other intel available, I think I was in the vast minority uh, there at the conference. And uh, I was in uh, the minority in the sense that I was born and raised in this faith. Uh, during two of uh, my meals I shared uh, with the, the fellow uh, conference participants, uh, I was sitting at a table full uh, of people who were not born and raised in this faith. And throughout the conference, I was surrounded by many more people who were not born and raised in this faith. And so all these people, they, they left prior circumstances to come to this faith. And for some people who left prior circumstances, they left without, without a hitch. Some people, they had no issues leaving whatever prior circumstances they were involved in and, and coming uh, to this faith, and uh, they had uh, no problems uh, whatsoever. But uh, through the conversations I have and the experience uh, that, that, that I understand is that many left prior circumstances with broken relationships and with hearts broken, and my question is, why put yourself through this? Why put yourself through going through those broken relationships, and why put yourselves through that heartbreak? As a lot of times change and, and, and uh, you know, associating with, with a different uh, group of people, that does bring uh, the, the, the loss of friendships, uh, sometimes the loss of family ties, and uh, absolutely a lot of times leaves hearts absolutely broken and so why would, why would such a large group of people do this to themselves. And, and the truth of the matter is, is the conference was filled with, with a, a, a lot of very, very intelligent people. These, these, these are not fools that we're dealing with. So they must have a good reason as to why they would leave prior circumstances uh, to, to this faith uh, that, that I, the spoiled little rotten kid, uh, was born and raised in. Um, I, I, I didn't have to go through uh, that heartbreak. Um, But I think uh, with, with very strong conviction that most, if not all, the people who put themselves through that heartbreak of leaving prior circumstances did so with the intention of seeking the truth. I was surrounded by a large group of people who sincerely valued the truth, many of which were willing and able to go through heartbreak to find that truth as they want to worship in truth, and I find that absolutely so admirable. I mean, we live in a world today that uh, tries to shy away or or many times even conceal the truth. Uh, You know, uh, you may hear uh, the expression, oh, there's no absolute truth. It's all relative it may, this, this is a phrase that drives me crazy. It may be true for me, but not for you or vice versa. Has anybody heard that and it's driven you bonkers? Yeah, absolutely. And there are some relative truths. I'm wearing a blue shirt. Uh, a lot of you guys right now cannot say that I am wearing a blue shirt. That, that is a truth that is relative to me. There we go, Bob, thank you, uh, and Mark, thank you, representing the, the Blue Shirt uh, crew, a handful of you guys there. That's, that's a relative uh, truth for a handful of us here. The issue is when, when society is trying to make these absolute truths into relative truths, and you know, eh, it's, it's not really that important. It might be true for you, but eh, that's, not, that's not really for me. That's not my cup of tea. And our society needs to wake up to the truth. Our society, uh, I hope to not step on any toes here, but our society needs uh, to wake up uh, to the truth of what a man is and what a woman is. Uh, Our society needs to wake up to the truth of what a marriage is, and maybe even more importantly, what a marriage is not. And, And most importantly, our society needs to wake up to the truth of an intelligent creator, namely Yahweh. We need to wake up to that truth. There, there's no uh, relativity when, when, when it comes to this absolute truth that there is an intelligent creator who goes by the name of Yahweh. And I understand I, I'm preaching uh, to uh, the choir here uh, this morning. But, but we as a church, we need to seek to worship in truth as well. We need to ensure we are worshiping the appropriate Figure or figures, whatever that entails. And that's going to be our our focus for for today as we explore the importance to worship in truth. Worshipping in truth. And what better way to explore this topic of worshiping in truth? Uh, then to take a look at the dialogue uh, between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bibles uh, this morning, we're going to take a look at the the ultimate uh, source of truth, the the Holy Scriptures, and we're going to open this uh, authoritative source of truth into the book of John, John chapter 4. And if you don't have uh, your Bibles with you, uh, the verses uh, will be projected behind me as well. Now, I love uh, this story in John chapter four. It's personally uh, one of my favorites. Uh, We don't have time uh, to read uh, through uh, the whole story, unfortunately, Uh, but essentially uh, Jesus and his disciples, his followers, uh, they were uh, in the land of Judea, uh, but they were headed out north uh, towards Galilee. So so Judea down here um, on the south, uh, uh, you know, kind of uh, near uh, the city of Jerusalem, and they were headed up to uh, the north in the region uh, known as Galilee. The issue is, in between Judea and Galilee is this region known as Samaria. And so if you want to, to travel from Judea to, to Galilee, uh, you're pretty much essentially going to have to go through uh, the, the land of Samaria, unless you go really uh, long ways outside of the Jordan River. Uh, that, that just uh, wouldn't make any sense, though. In the land uh, of Samaria lived the people known as the, any guesses? The Samaritan, oh, you you guys are on it this morning. Yeah, the Samaritan, and who are the Samaritans exactly? And to answer that question, uh, we need to do uh, just a very brief uh, history lesson uh, to help us answer this question of who exactly the Samaritans are. So around 1,000 BC, under uh, the rule of Saul, David, and Solomon, uh, the nation of Israel was one unified nation. Now, unfortunately, under uh, Solomon's uh, son, Rehoboam, uh, this one unified nation split off into two separate nations. And that's where we have the 10 northern tribes of Israel and the the two southern tribes of of Judah and Benjamin, known as uh, the nation of uh, Judah. And so these two separate uh, nations, they were related nations that, that I think of uh, acted a lot like uh, siblings. You know, a lot of times siblings, we, we can have like sort of a, a love-hate relationship sometimes. We love them, but, but sometimes they just drive us absolutely uh, crazy. And uh, in this uh, re- relationship, uh, this dynamic, there wasn't as much love a- as there was disdain and, and hate uh, for one another. Now, in 721 BC, the Assyrian Empire, the big empire of the time, came and conquered the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And when they conquered Israel, Assyria brought with them people from Babylon and the other surrounding areas to settle in this land of Israel. And so these foreigners united with the Jews that remained in the area. And that's uh, the origin of the Samaritans, uh, according to Easton's uh, Bible Dictionary. There's not a complete uniformity as to when uh, the the Samaritans, uh, this group of people exactly uh, started. Many associate uh, the the idea uh, of these foreigners uh, mixing in uh, with these Jews um, during the time when Israel was conquered by the nation of Assyria. And so for 700 years... These two people groups did not get along. The Samaritans and the Jews, they they had a lot of animosity towards one another. The Jews wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Samaritans. You know, uh, later on uh, 586 BC, uh, the the people of Judah, the the Jews, they were eventually conquered by the nation of Babylon. After 70 years in exile, they were able to return to the land. Well, they returned to uh, the land and seeing that their cities have been destroyed and their temple, their place of worship has been destroyed. And so they need to rebuild the temple. And these people disliked the Samaritans so much that they didn't even want their help rebuilding the temple. He's like, get away, this is our responsibility, this is our duty as uh, Jews. And so the Samaritans, uh, I'm sure they they did not take this uh, very kindly. Um, And so the Samaritans, they erected their own place of worship on Mount Gerizim uh, in uh, the land of uh, Samaria. And so the Samaritans and the Jews, they both had their own temple where they worshiped God. And, you know, tension continued to grow and grow and grow. It got, got so bad that around uh, 130 BC under uh, the Jewish ruler John Hyrcanus, uh, the Jews destroyed the Samaritan temple. I mean, here we, we have two related groups of people and, and the Jews come and, and they go and, and they do exactly what the Babylonian empire uh, did to their temple. They go and they destroy the temple at Mount Gerizim. And then uh, the Samaritans, they got their revenge uh, eventually. In 86, uh, the Samaritans, they spread human bones uh, within uh, the temple porches uh, in the temple in Jerusalem uh, during Passover. And so we we just get a glimpse uh, of the animosity, the, the, the disdain that the Jews and the Samaritans had towards one another. And this was very much present in the day and age of Jesus. And so here is Jesus, very, very much a Jew himself, traveling through the land of Samaria. There's going to be some issues. It was certainly not uncommon for Jews traveling through Samaria to be treated with hostility in the land of Samaria. And so Jesus and his disciples, uh, Jews, they, they would have been viewed as outcasts. And so Jesus and his disciples, uh, they go to a well uh, to draw some water, and and it's around noon, and they encounter this Samaritan woman. And this uh, Samaritan woman is drawing water from the well at noon, which was really uncommon. Usually, uh, you want to go and draw the water uh, early in the morning, uh, as as it wasn't as hot at that time of day. But here, for whatever reason, uh, she is drawing water uh, at around noon. And so what was this woman doing, drawing water in the heat of the day? But we find out, uh, the, the readers here, I, I think Jesus, he, he had uh, this knowledge. Uh, but, but we find out that the woman must have been embarrassed and an outcast herself in her community. As she has had five husbands, and she is now with a different man who is not even her husband. And in that day and age, they did not handle such topics lightly. You know, our, our uh, society, uh, we, we have uh, in general a fairly uh, light tone uh, towards uh, this concept. But in that day and age, an unmarried lady uh, who was not a virgin and divorced had it extremely, extremely rough. And so here's two outcasts in the land of Samaria, Jesus and the Samaritan woman, and they meet at this Well. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go through this whole dialogue. But if we jump down uh, to verse 19 here, after Jesus identifies this woman without even telling her that, hey, you had, had, you've had uh, five husbands, and the man you're with now isn't even your husband. The, the woman said to him in verse 19, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped in on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And so that this lady, uh, she, she apparently uh, got some insight here. She, she, she's not a complete fool. And, and she recognized that, hey, this guy has had some, he has some unordinary knowledge. How did he know that, that I was married to five guys previously and the guy I'm with now isn't even my husband? And so she recognized that, hey, you, mu- you must be a prophet. You must be someone who speaks the words of God. And she says, we have a bit of an issue. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain in Gerizim, in the land of Samaria. But you say, your people, that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. There's an issue there. Jesus a Jew. His people say that they they, they gotta worship at the temple in Jerusalem, but her people, the Samaritans, they're worshiping up at Mount Gerizim. And she seems a bit concerned uh, about this issue. How are we going to reconcile this prophet, this man of great knowledge, and so Jesus uh, says to her in verse 21. And Jesus said to her, "Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews." And so Jesus Jesus says, "Listen up, listen up. There's no need to worry here. Uh, there's a time coming where worship won't be confined to the temple of Jerusalem or here uh, near Mount Gerizim. And we know this to take place after the crucifixion. If you remember the story of the crucifixion, uh, when when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain in the temple, the the curtain that separated the most holy of holies uh, from the rest uh, of humanity, that was torn from top to bottom. It's symbolic that, that now we can approach God wherever we go, as Jesus serves as our mediator. And so no longer do, do we have to worship God in the temple of Jerusalem. That, that, that's available anywhere we go. And uh, now, uh, the, the, so, so there's a lot more freedom here. It, it's not confined uh, to the, the, these two different locations. So there's no issues as far as the location, but... We still have an issue. Issue in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. How many of you guys uh, would, would like to, to hear the words of Jesus Jesus say to you, listen up, you worship what you don't even know? I mean, and she, she didn't understand the, the full implications of who this guy was, but she recognized that, that he was someone who spoke the word of God and someone who was speaking the word of God told her that, hey, you worship what you don't even know. But we, the Jews, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. And we see this, this narrative play out uh, throughout uh, the Old Testament as uh, the, the, the Jews, is, right? so the that, Israelites, that was God's chosen people. And, and Jesus, a descendant of the Jews, salvation very much comes from the Jews. But here we have uh, the the Samaritans uh, who don't know uh, God largely because they disregard a large chunk of the scriptures. We actually, uh, for those of you guys who were at uh, the conference yesterday, they they talked uh, a bit about this. I don't remember uh, whose presentation it was, but they mentioned uh, the Samaritans, uh, the Jews, they they, uh, went by the the entire Old Testament, the entire scripture that was available to them at that uh, day and age. But the Samaritans, on the other hand, they only viewed the first five books of the Old Testament to, to be the authoritative source of truth. The rest of the books of history and poetry and prophets, they disregarded them. They disregarded the majority of God's scripture. And so here Jesus says, you worship what you don't even know as the main source of how we get to know God, you disregard. You disregard this avenue to how God reveals himself to us. So of course, these Samaritans are worshiping a being and whom they do not even know. And this is important because uh, later on in in the book, in John uh, 17, uh, 3, Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so here we we have a a bit of a dilemma. We have the Samaritans who don't know God largely because they disregard uh, large uh, chunks of scripture and then a later date, Jesus says it's eternal life to know God. I'll let you guys uh, kind of connect the dots there and, and the issue with this group of the Samaritans who disregard uh, large uh, chunks of the scripture. And so we continue uh, in, in uh, verse 23 here, and Jesus continues, he says, but the hour's coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And so Jesus uh, makes this, this this distinction that there are true worshipers. And if he makes this distinction that there are true worship worshipers, then that implies that there are in turn false worshipers. And so what what exactly do these true worshipers do? According uh, to the words of Jesus, they worship God both in spirit and truth. Now, worshiping uh, God and spirit, originally I was going to uh, combine uh, these two, but really that, that deserves its own discussion in, in dealing with worshiping God and spirit. And so I'm sure that that's a message uh, that we will uh, tackle at a later date. And so that's one element uh, of true worship here. I, I don't want to downgrade that. Uh, an, uh, an important element of true worship is worshiping God and spirit, The other key element of being a true worshiper is worshiping the truth, is to worship in truth, worship God, worship Yahweh for who he is. And God seeks these people. That's pretty cool. God God seeks these people. But the hour is coming is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people Worship him. God is scanning the earth. God, God, who is omnipresent, present everywhere. God, God, God is searching out people who are true worshipers, who are worshiping him in spirit and in truth. God wants these people. God wants his creation to recognize his goodness and his glory. And we finish out uh, here in uh, 25 and uh, 26. Uh, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Um, And so here, uh, these two last uh, verses that we'll read here, Jesus says, oh, that's no issue. That's no issue. We we don't have an issue here uh, uh, of worshiping in spirit and truth, for I know the Messiah is coming. And when the Messiah comes he is going to, to share with us uh, this truth. When he, when he comes, he, he will tell us all things. He, he's going to share the truth with us. One <laughs> well, of my favorite lines in scripture in verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. <laughs> Boom, mic drop. Uh, that, is, that is much a, of a mic drop moment that you, that you can have. She's, she's excited. that There's a Messiah coming that's going to share the truth with everybody. <laughs> he's like, I am he, I'm that guy, I am that Messiah, I'm here to share this truth with you. And I find it really interesting that that Jesus shared this truth so blatantly, because throughout uh, the narrative of the gospels, it was very rare where Jesus was straight up and blatant that he was the son of God, that he is the Messiah, the, the chosen one of God. But here uh, th- this lady uh, she she had a pure heart a, a pure and simple heart and, and he clearly uh, illustrates uh, th- this truth to her so that she can believe but to others he, he veiled his identity and had Them search, and so eventually, if we were to finish out this narrative, eventually the Samaritan Samaritan woman she leaves her jar of water—the sole reason uh, why she was there uh, to begin with—and she shares with her friends and family what transpired. Uh, In essence, she she becomes a well to the living water. She 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 serves as a source where someone can access this living water that Jesus talks about in the earlier uh, dialogue. But here in this chunk of dialogue that we took a look at in verses 19 through 26, we see that Jesus expressed the importance of true worship. God is seeking true worshipers. And this is nothing new with the arrival of Jesus. This has always been and will continue to always be a big deal to God. The very first commandment of the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20 reads, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Some translations uh, read, or besides me. So the very first uh, commandment of the the 10 commandments that that God uh, gave uh, to Moses and to the Israelites was that you shall not have any other gods beside you. You should not worship any other gods besides me, Yahweh, because I am seeking for true worshipers. I am jealous. God is jealous for your attention. He's jealous for your worship and your glory, and it upsets him when we give our worship and glory to things that do not deserve our worship and glory. This has always been a huge deal to God. I think about uh, God's very clear instructions uh, to the Israelites as they're clearing out the land. God wanted them to completely drive these people out of the land. And one of the primary reasons for this is that the people uh, of the land and Canaan who were there before uh, Joshua led the Israelites, they were worshiping foreign gods. And and Yahweh did, did not want his chosen people to associate with these foreigners who worship foreign gods, you know, the exact thing that, that the nation of Israel did. And, and that's where uh, we, we get the idea of the Samaritans, the group of people who, who associated with these foreign gods, these foreign people. And here, uh, I'm sure in large part due to uh, their influence on them, they disregarded large chunks of the avenue in which We get to know God, the authoritative source of doctrine in our lives. And so, worshiping in truth is crucial. It's always been crucial. It's been a big deal for for God from the beginning of time, and it will always be a huge deal to God. God doesn't change. And worship is a big part of what being a Christian is all about. But what we see here uh, through the words of Jesus is that having pure motives in our worship is not enough. That alone is not enough. I'm sure there were many, many Samaritans who had pure motives in worshiping God. But Jesus indicates it's not enough. It's not enough just to have these pure motives of worshiping God. He indicates that truth is essential to being a true worshiper, someone who worships in spirit and in truth. They don't know that the Samaritans, they don't know who they worship. That is so sad. They don't know who they worship. If you don't know who you worship, then how can you possibly worship in truth? And today, in the the 21st century, there, there are many genuine, genuine people in the world who have pure motives in worshiping their gods. But those pure motives are not enough. We need to worship in truth as well. And so what does this mean for us as a body of believers, as a church? Well, it obviously means that we need to make sure that we worship in truth. We we see how we see here how this is a big deal to God. Jesus illustrated that that God is seeking true worshipers, worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And so we must ensure that we have the truth. Well, how do we ensure that we have the truth? We we study, we meditate, and we read on the only authoritative source of truth in the whole entire world, and that's the Bible. I myself have no authority. Your Sunday school teacher and himself or herself has no authority. The Pope and himself has no authority. Your your teachers, your, your bosses, they have no authority on this idea of truth. The only authoritative source of truth in our life is God's word for us. And so we can't disregard the scriptures. There's many genuine Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims with pure motives who disregard the authoritative word of God. And that pure motive is not enough. There are many Christians who treat God's word similarly to the Samaritans. And that too is not enough or they disregard God's holy word. And many Christians who seem to not be worshiping the truth. And so we must have conviction in who we worship as a God. And the only way we can have conviction in who we worship as a God is if we are individually seeking out God through his scriptures. This is how we know God. This is eternal life. Eternal life is at stake. It's eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so let's be a church filled with people diligently seeking the truth for ourselves so that we can be a church that worships God and truth so that you and I, we can be true Worshippers, and give the glory and the honor and the praise that our heavenly father so desires from us. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Father, we give you all of the glory and the honor and the praise. Father, it's my prayer that you open our eyes, our mind, our heart to your truth ever that may be, Father, open our eyes to your truth so that we can worship you both in spirit and in truth. So Father, I just thank you so much for the miracle it is that you preserved your word, the Holy Scripture, so that we can begin to understand who you are as our God, as our Heavenly Father. And so we thank you so much for that. It's in Jesus' precious and holy and powerful and authoritative name that we pray, amen.